Action Park Media. Well, you are in for a treat today. I have the phenomenal Chanel on the show, New Zealander of the Year, amazing book out now. We discuss pressure, we talk about burnout, being basically paving the way and changing laws, which is phenomenal, all encapsulated in one of the most impressive early 20s people on the planet, I believe. But such an inspiring story and a really delightful chat. I just was smiling the entire time. So without further ado, this is Pretty Depressed with Chanel. I'm joined by the phenomenal Chanel. Now, Chanel, Apparently, there are a few things that you're supposed to do in life. Two of them are plant a tree and write a book. I'm not sure if you've planted a tree, but you've written a book. Um, uh, how did that journey come about? Because so many of us, I wrote one in, back when I knew everything. When I was 25, I was like, I got this. Now I literally am in the position of where people send my own advice back to me because I'm coming down the other side of the mountain. I don't know if you've had that experience yet, but... How did the book come about and, and how do you feel about it? Oh, on planting trees, I grew up in Fiji, so we planted many trees. We had no option. I mean, it was we had a class called agriculture where we all we did was plant trees. So that was incredible. Uh, yeah. in so you've done both life goals then. You can you're done. <laughs> I've succeeded. I could literally just lie in my grave now. <laughs> yeah. Please don't, but at least that's an option to you. Go, well, did that, right. The book was really not something I'd expected. It came around, you know, at at 22, you don't really expect to write a book, right? So I was in a meeting with my managers and I said, you know what, I want to do a podcast or I want to write a book. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, you could do both. And I think that is an incredible part of having people around you that support you. Because if had my manager said, you know what, I don't think you're capable of writing a book, I would have gone, you know what, you're right. Instead, they supported me. We are tensing as my management. So they supported me. And then I was in a meeting with Alan and Anwen. And we quite literally were just sitting at a cafe. And uh, I was thinking that I was going to write a manifesto, a book with my ideas, some sort of gay agenda, really. Um, and the publishers started asking me questions about my life and I told them my life story. And they came back and said, do you want to write a memoir? And I thought, at 22, a memoir? And then I'd realized, actually, I've lived a life that when turned into a book is automatically banned in multiple states of the United States of America. And so, you know what? It was worth writing it. Yeah. Is that true even right now, even today, it's banned? Yes. I mean, it, it, yes, entirely because it talks about queer people. <laughs> it's, I'm in America at the moment and I am clenching my, t- I mean, it just is, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Call it what it is. It's ridiculous. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I know that you are fighting the, this fight often. It's just, yeah. Yeah. This whole idea, you know, this whole idea of banning queer literature is so ridiculous because conservatives, the, the idea behind it is that if you do not tell young people that queer people exist, then they won't become queer. I grew up in Fiji during a time it was a crime to be homosexuality, a crime to be gay, and uh, there were no no queer people around me. So I did not see a single queer person, and I still turned out to be probably one of the most queer pers- people that I know. That's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. <laughs> I 
I don't know if you read this, but I read this article. It was a while ago called um, When Being a Lesbian Was Profitable Men for Men. And it was about um, a bit of a tangent here, but I'll, I will land. <laughs> uh, and it was about uh, like lesbian smut porn type stuff was always written by men who would pen female author names. But the only way in the US that it would be distributed is if at the end she killed herself or she turned straight. And this wasn't that long ago. I was, and that blew my mind. Like, not only are these men posing as women to like create, you know, because people want to read yeah. women, is that then they have to at the end. So you have this whole generation, I believe, who would have read this and been like, oh, I feel seen for the first time, only to get to the end and either she gives herself or turns straight. I'm like, that's yeah. horrific. So, <laughs> Thank you for being part of the progress of like creating, you know, art and and work like this that offers a slightly different narrative for people. Heaven forbid. Crazy. You know, it's always really interesting for me to see that, you know, queer people are, are portrayed as the threat when it's really just cisgender men. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. So we wrote a book and wrote a memoir, and you've done what I tend to do and Kiwis often do it, diminish it by putting an age on it and going, what would I know? But it sounds like through your small and short time on this planet, you've had some pretty epic experiences. So I think no one better than to write a memoir. I'd rather read 22 years of interesting lesson learning than 70 years of like, and nothing really happened. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) what was was challenging about the process? And did you, did you find it traumatizing at all kind of reliving things or did you zoom out well you know i'd after escaping my conversion therapy from fiji i'd never really looked back and i told myself that i would never really look back because it was such a traumatic experience i mean my conversion therapy nearly destroyed me and so i would have done absolutely everything to avoid looking back at it so writing this book was walking through my life and feeling every one of those emotions again. So in a sense, it was quite traumatic because I found myself just crying in certain chapters and not really knowing why, but I just knew that something was resurfacing. Yeah. Um, For for those that haven't experienced conversion therapy, and you can speak as much or as little to this as you want, can you, even just in broad terms, it doesn't have to be your own experience, speak about what that looks like? Some people may not actually know. Well, I wrote an entire book so these. Uh, okay. okay, good. So buy the book, but yeah. <laughs> I have no choice. I have no choice but to speak about it. I mean, the first, yeah. but the first eight chapters is really just about conversion therapy and how it starts and how it escalates. For me, you know, I grew up a really feminine boy. And, and in the islands, there is, well, not even just in the islands, really all over the world, there is this ideal for what a boy should be. And a boy should always be masculine. And so for me to grow up as a little feminine kid, that was a problem. And so one day my church leaders or camp leaders um, called me in and said, uh, do you love your family? And do you want to be a part of your community? And as a young kid, the only thing I'd ever known and loved was my family and my community. So I would do anything to stay a part of it. Yeah. And so they said to me that if you do not change some things about yourself, your family will disown you, your community will banish you, and you will burn in hell for the rest of your life. And so for, you know, a six, seven year old, that that was I would have done 
anything to, you know, change. And so I went to conversion therapy hoping that the change that they wanted would happen. Mm -hmm. And it started off things you would describe as benign, such as prayers. So praying to God to heal you, they don't really tell you what needs the healing or the fixing and you're not allowed to investigate, but they tell you that you need to be healed and fixed. And when the prayers didn't work, they escalated it to enchanted bracelets. So Fiji, a standard part of Fiji is black magic or voodoo. And my next door neighbor was a voodoo queen. And so the rumor was that she had cursed me to become a feminine boy. And so wearing enchanted bracelets would rid me of these evil spirits that were making me feminine or queer. Note that throughout my conversion therapy, there is this hatred for being feminine. Mm. So it's it's the conversion. My conversion therapy wasn't inherent, just homophobic. It was also slightly, yeah, and ironic that we're giving you what I would don a female, like a sorry, not female, feminine uh, relic to almost yeah, yeah, and 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 then the enchanted bracelets, of course, didn't work. And then that was escalated to beatings and at one stage whippings. And I was about nine years old when they were whipping me with this coarse rope. But I think the, and and then those whippings were escalated to exorcisms, which included pressing crosses in my body and uh, beating me with a Bible. All of those things were, of course, bad. I think the thing that had the most profound impact on me was the evasion therapy. And that was, um, I was told to wear rubber bands around my finger and snap myself every time I had a queer thought or feeling. You know, your queerness doesn't elicit pain. Snapping yourself with a rubber band does. So after multiple pairings of your queerness and snapping yourself with a rubber band, your queerness starts to elicit pain by itself. So accepting your queer becomes a punishment itself. And I think that it rewired my brain into just eliciting pain and the thought of being queer. And the way that I did it was by just having lots of intimate queer experiences. And I think the only thing that will properly undo it is just having more of those experiences. And I wish that for you. Have the best experiences. Like that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I'm sorry that that is a narrative of so many. That's um, not an experience I've had in my life. And I I want to hold space for it because it's you don't deserve that. No one deserves that. And hopefully with you coming and speaking about it will help some people realize that that's a real thing. Because, you know, I've coasted through my life. I've not had that experience before. And I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you. Well, you don't have to be sorry because had it not happened, I wouldn't have a book. <laughs> well, this is true, but that's all still, still, I'm sure we would all, but yes, no, I, I appreciate that. And then um, I guess I'm, I'm really curious in, in your journey, how it has unfolded to what a phenomenal leader and speaker you are. I mean, really leading and speaking on really public platforms and, in a such an articulate way, like, did you see this as part of your journey? Have you kind of just walked into it and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm a leader now. <laughs> yeah. 
Truthfully, I think the movement to ban conversion therapy just dropped onto me and I had no choice but to just take it and run with it. I was in year 12, which is the second last year of high school in New Zealand. It was the summer of 2017 and I was volunteering at Middlemore Hospital and a church leader walked up to me at the reception and offered to pray my gateway. And I refused. So he looked at me and he said, it's hot, but do you know what's hotter? Hell. Now, at 17, the idea of going to hell was frightening. At 23, going to hell makes perfect sense with my fantasy. I mean, if all the gays are going to hell. Sign me up, yeah. Yeah, sign me up. It appears that everyone with a brain is going to hell. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll yeah. see you there, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, uh, but in that moment, I'd realized that conversion therapy was still legal in New Zealand, but as a mere 17-year-old, I had no connections to politicians, journalists, or, or anyone in the queer community. I'd just come out, but I hadn't even fully come out. So, yeah. as a stubborn teenager, I knew I wanted the law to change and I would do anything to get it done. It was a five-year-long movement to get conversion therapy banned. Um, but I guess the most pivotal moment for me was in 2019, I got to go to youth parliament, which is just a mock parliament for young people. And I was given three minutes to speak. And I got up and I said, Madam Speaker, when I woke up this morning, I didn't look in the mirror and say, oops, I'm gay, better fix that. And the entire house erupted in laughter. And in that moment, I knew that there was an appetite for this movement. So five years, took a lot of time, probably took away my mental well-being as well, took away my teenage years, which was probably the thing that I regret the most. But in the end, we can say quite proudly that we've banned conversion therapy and we've sent a message to young queer people that their the erasure of their identities will not be accepted. Mm. Does it feel tangible, the weight of what you've done? I mean, I'm sure people come to you often and, and thank you, and if I, as they should. But does it feel tangible to you? Like, I mean, or, yeah. No, no. It's a, <laughs> I it's think, a strange thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah, no, yeah. it's not. People, uh, it's, it's so significant. And had anyone else done it, I would, I would think it would be so significant. But because I've done it, I've gotten a law changed. I just think, you know, well, it's a piece of cake now. Yeah, totally. What else you got? Yeah, yeah. That's what it feels like. But you know, in the in the end of the book, it really ends after we've banned conversion therapy. And what happened was that because I got involved in the movement to ban conversion therapy so young, before I had formed a sense of self or a sense of identity, my entire identity was wrapped around the movement to ban conversion therapy. And while I really wanted to end conversion therapy and ban it in law, when the movement came to an end, I almost ended a state of mourning. Yeah. I was grieving this movement because with That's the movement, so yeah, my movement, the movement was over and so was this entire identity that I'd built around it. So for months on end, I just felt so incredibly depressed and also as though there was no more purpose for me. So, so that was a really interesting thing that I had come off this win, yeah. something that very few people will get to do in their entire life. And instead of celebrating, I was actually quite depressed about it. 
That is interesting because it's not what you would think. You'd think you'd be like, no. yeah, let's party. And there's probably so much exhaustion and probably a season of burnout after that. I'm sure you would get it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a chapter literally called, <laughs> chapter 25 is called Burning Out. Yep. Chapter 26 yep. is called Burnt Out. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry to say that I've walked to this dance before, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's, I think a lot of people will relate to that sense of identity though, you know, with COVID, a lot of people have had a life pivot, obviously in a different silo than you, but, and feeling like your identity is tied to something and then it go away and you kind of like, who am I now? And that's a very exciting question to ask at a young age because you have a little bit more hope and confidence to go, okay, what next, what does next chapter look like for you? Like what, what do you want it to be? Have you found a real hunger for law change and politics? Or are you kind of like, get me away from that and now just? <laughs> well, truthfully, I, I I have so many laws that I would like change. You know, I would like greyhound racing banned in New Zealand. <laughs> On that crusade, yes. I would like to decriminalise cannabis. Um, I would like to lower the youth, uh, the voting age. There's so many things that I would like to do that have absolutely nothing to do with my queer identity. Um, but I guess... They are informed by me being queer in the sense that being queer has put me in positions. Well, not really being queer, people being homophobic and transphobic has put me in positions where I've had to fight for myself. So I've got this, I guess, natural, inherent um, attraction towards fighting for the underdog. So, <laughs> so if you find a vulnerable group, I'm, I've, I've got this innate desire to help. Um, but I don't think that politics is really my only option and and possibly not something that I've actively considered. It is something that other people have projected onto me in the sense that people believe that I will become a politician. And it, it is likely that I might, but it's not something that I sit around and actively um, create a path towards. That being said, it is a... a decent career to go go down if I wanted to change law. Equally, I could become a lawyer or an academic or a journalist. Um, I think becoming a journalist is a very exciting idea. I love that. Yes, you should do. And you know what? You can do all of those things as well. Yeah. You know, we're not bound by your one career choice forever. Um, I I spoke to Chloe Swarbrick very early as I was doing this podcast, and I was surprised to know she had a similar thing where politics wasn't really what she wanted to do. It's just like no one else wanted to save this thing, this building that she was about, and so kind of got almost pulled in that way. And thank goodness she did. She's been phenomenal. But um, I see some parallels with you. It's like, well, this isn't what I was gunning for, but yet... I am. Yeah. Anyone, yeah. And truth be told, anyone who wants to become a politician, I believe that's enough reason to not allow them to become a politician. <laughs> Just the power that I'm after. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what kind of person or personality you need to have to think that yes. becoming a politician is the right job for you. No. Yes, you're so right. It's uh Yes, it should be the the people who are like, I just don't want to do it. I'm like, but you must do it, and that's the reason. Yes. Um, you you spoke and touched lightly on your own mental health, and and if you're comfortable, I'd love to dive in of 
how you pulled yourself out of burnout or how how you do cope with overwhelm. And I know your experience will be very unique and I'm also projecting that you experienced overwhelm, but I imagine you do when you've kind of got, I'm sure many people who have walked a similar journey looking to you as role model, looking to you for answer. The idea of burnout and overwhelm is something that everyone can relate to in their own lives. Did you have any practices that were helpful and or hindering that we can all take away from? Oh, God, I'm actually the most pathetic person to give advice (laughs) on (laughs) mental well-being because I have been absolutely rubbish at taking care of mine. And I think you don't really get into mindfulness and taking care of your well-being until, you know, your late 20s or early 30s. And then you realize, oh, fuck, I should have started earlier. And uh, the great thing and equally the the bad thing about me is that I recognize I need to take care of my well-being. I just don't do it. <laughs> right. That's You know what? I recognize that just because I'm thin doesn't mean I can medicate with sugar, but yet I still do it. So, <laughs> You know, truth, truthfully, I've... Uh, I've had instances where I've just kind of been so overwhelmed, but I have this weird thing in my head that tells me that if you give up, who's there to take the workload that you've got? And it's this weird, almost as a self-inflicted punishment because we live in this weird, bigoted and capitalist society. We kind of go, well, if I just give up, no one's actually going to, no one's actually going to do this for me. You know, sometimes I think I think resting is unfortunately become a luxury when it really should be, you know, treated as a necessity. Yeah, I, I'd say to people, if you have the opportunity to log off and rest, completely disconnect from the social medias that we have right now, that is possibly one of the best things you can do for yourself because we're constantly constantly targeted with you know some places burning down some places flooding someone's been short there's a racist event in a shop it's just yeah the ending and the human body can only take so much so Mm -hmm. if you need to disconnect from the world and you can disconnect from the world do it because the world has become a very nasty place how do you remain positive and i (laughs) Look, this is a podcast about mental health. <laughs> We're all dancing that line. Like it's <laughs> but maybe positive is the wrong word. How, how do you how do you protect your energy? You're a very generous person who gives out a lot of time. Uh, you know, you've written a book of experience to help. Do you have any practices in place to kind of make sure you do have some energy back for you, or are you just kind of allowing everyone to take in this season? Truthfully. I'm very successful. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> At 23, I'm very fucking successful. You know, you, 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 I just wow. have to, sometimes I just have to think about the things that I've done, you know, before, oh. before at 23, I was a young New Zealander of the year. I became a part of the Forbes 30 under 30. I write for the Herald. I, I have a bloody book, you know, I led the movement to ban conversion therapy and change the law. Very few people get to do any of those things in their entire life. and. So I I always think that, you know, there have been so many obstacles in my life and so many people try to actively disrupt the trajectory of my life. And yet I'm going strong. So I say to people, you know what, if you put out 
into the world positivity, it will have a way to find you again. Beautiful. That's a beautiful idea. And I love you for that. The reason I'm catching my words is I I think I block it coming back to me. That's one of my toxic traits is that I keep strangling and keep fighting and don't allow it to find its yeah. way back to me because it doesn't look like how I think it might look. And, you know, so I'm... Sometimes it feels selfish, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels selfish to just be like, you know what? I deserve to be happy and I deserve to relax. And I've had this entire process of feeling productivity anxiety. And that's just that you feel anxiety because you're not being productive. So, yeah. So when you when you lie down to rest, you're not actually resting because the entire time you're thinking about what you could be producing or what else you could be doing and that is a real evil so i guess the way to be able to properly rest and allow happiness and joy to find you is to just undo that guilt like i felt that weird guilt of like just something really nice has happened to me and then immediately i think about you know someone else who doesn't have enough yeah there will always be someone who doesn't have yes as much as you do, or someone who doesn't have enough, that doesn't mean you should deprive yourself of the basic joys of life. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you're not going to really take care of anybody else. So true. I say that, and then I'm going to go punish myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, we'll just cut that out. That's fine. He, he's got to all figured out. Yeah, um, no, because I, guilt is an interesting one. I, am a perfectionist and a hard worker and you're right I could also sit here in my 30s now and go I've got a book I'm very successful but yeah it comes with this like wave of because I'm not where I want to be yet there's more I can be doing I'm a curious hungry person which I love about myself but simultaneously causes me pain because I can't just sit there and watch tv without being like you piece of shit you haven't done enough there's more you can be doing. Like, and it's like, oh my God. Funny story. So what somewhat funny story that which might be a little bit irrelevant is that um when I was young, I was I used to listen to Pussycat Dolls and this the song When I Grow Up. And, and I would listen to that song and it would be like, oh, when I grow up, I'm gonna be like the star. And like at 23, I'm I get spoken about so much. And this in this country, like I've achieved what that what was the dream of my childhood, right? And you know, of course, it was a very vain dream, but I was a fucking kid. So it doesn't really matter. So if you think about like every time I think back, I'm like, okay, five years ago I wanted to do this thing. I've done it. Why hasn't it brought me satisfaction? And it's just this weird human desire to keep chasing more. Mm-hmm. And I have been able to figure out how to stop chasing more and just be happy with what I've already achieved. And, and, and I just, but I think just being honest, just being honest about that makes me feel as though I'm not alone in that weird feeling of not, not feeling like I've, I've done enough or I don't have enough or that I need to achieve more. And you're probably in a situation too. And I will hand on my, fall on my sword the first thing I'm like okay you've done this what else you got yeah because it's like (laughs) you're probably receiving that energy from everyone too it's like at 23 you've done this 
Well, then what else can you? Yeah, and you're. We're, really, so I'm putting that, that on you, myself included. Yeah, no. You're absolutely right. Um, a few minutes after conversion therapy was banned, and I mean quite literally a few minutes after Parliament passed a law to ban conversion therapy, my phone rang and as the media wanted to talk. And every single one of the journalists asked me, what's next? And I, and I just thought it's been a few minutes since the biggest thing I've done in my life has happened. And you're no longer interested in celebrating that one thing that I've done change the law of this country. Instead, you're asking me, okay, what's next? And so it's, it's people, we're constantly told that even after you've achieved your biggest dream, there must be something else you must want to do. What if I don't want to do anything else? What if I just want to spend the rest of my life relaxing and being happy? Well, we should all want that for you. However, we're like, you have now proven that you can change <laughs> it. So we've found our hero. Let's go. The funny thing is that I say I just want to be happy. I would not be happy if I was not doing something and, and creating change. I know. You've found your, your drug of choice, which is a, a thank goodness. It's, um, it's cannabis. <laughs> totally. And thank God it's cannabis. No. Uh, which it may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's crystal meth, not what we wanted. Which is there, but that's fine. Uh, no, and I, I'm glad. It, it feels... Look, as an outsider, it feels right that you are aligned in this space because you have been able to make change. A lot of people talk about it. Actually, a lot of people complain about what's wrong. You've actually gone and taken steps to do it. And, and I hope that people can, you know, hear your story and be inspired to take action to do the same because oh, how exhausting and boring it is with people just being like, meh, 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 complain, complain, and don't do anything about it. I don't have time for that. So. Thank you for people like you. Um, I don't know where 32 minutes went. It's just sucked into some uh, stratosphere because I'm having such a good time talking to you. Where can people get the book? And, and what, are you, what are you most proud of about it? Is it that it's tangible? Firstly, where can people get the book? If you're in New Zealand, you can get the book in all good bookstores. Um, Primarily shops like Whitcurls, Paper Plus, and any of your independent local bookshops, they should all have it. Um, my publisher is Ellen and Unwin, so they are one of New Zealand's biggest publishers, which means that their books go into next to every bookshop. However, on my Instagram account, in my bio, there's a link that links you to all the stores. If you're in Australia, you can get the book on Booktopia, or some of your bookshops might have them. If you're not in Australia or New Zealand, Mighty Ape is shipping to places like the States and Canada and, and other places. However, if you happen to be in a country that doesn't have an, an online store that will deliver to you, my publishers, Alan and Anwen, will ship, to, ship it to you if you just order it from their website. So, Wow, cool. That's but awesome. Exactly, you can get it at any part of the world unless you're living in a world that doesn't permit my brain. <laughs> uh, and, Is there a, a work around that? Can we not just put like a fake cover or something or like? Oh, well, you'll be able to get the book because no one will actually, you can get the book. The thing is, these book bins are impractical, cannot be enforced because when you order a book, it goes into inside a box. Yeah. It gets shipped, the box gets shipped to your house. 
No one knows if the book inside. No one knows the content of the book. No one is going to read the contents of the book. But that being said, I guess the the proudest thing, you know, I I I, th- I just re- I'm just really proud that I was able to produce something that might give a young queer person in my situation as I was a kid mm-hmm. hope to keep going. You know, and, and my dedication for the book really is, I wrote the first page of my book says, for all the queer people fighting to live another day, never give up. And and I guess that's the proudest part of this entire journey is that this book will hopefully keep someone else going. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, the last question I ask everyone on the podcast is what does your brain look like? Is it a movie scene, a haunted house, a garden? Like, do you have a visual of what? Oh so my brain is an intersection, a four-way intersection, and all yep. the lights are red. And okay. I'm one of the cars at an intersection. Yep. At any minute, all the lights are going to go green. Right. And I don't know if I should go or if the other drivers are going to go, we're all staring at each other and then we all press the accelerator at the same time and perhaps there will be an accident. Right. This is so <laughs> visually different, but conceptually the same as my My brain is like a woman looking at camera surrounded by bulging filing cabinets and you've asked her to get something and she knows it's somewhere. Yeah. But it's just not... I can picture glasses, <laughs> glasses, the head is actually quite bigger than everything nope. else. I, I can, I can visualize it. <laughs> and I got yours like an instant. So, okay. Fantastic. Someone told me like, why don't you give her like a laptop and chair and a cup of tea? And I'm like, well, yes. Okay, great. And so to you, I say, let's give you um, like someone with a lollipop to do stop, go, let some more order. Well, go. Actually, I have my, uh, in a, I have my ADHD appointment soon and I yes. might get might get diagnosed and might get medicated, which will be fantastic. Great. Okay. Well, wishing you all the luck for that. That can be your person with the lollipop. Stop yes. going. Get someone yes. with some order going down there to yes. this intersection. Thank you. <laughs> um, hey, what a, what a dream. What a delight. Thank you so much for taking time to chat to me today. I'm really, really grateful. And I hope that people just eat up the contents of your book and follow your journey with nothing but delight and support and joy and and thank you for the work that you do thank you thank you so much for having me